Good morning and welcome. I'm Lucian Hudson, the Director of Communications. We are delighted to be gathered today to celebrate the Olympic achievements of Open University students and alumni. We're joined by the Mayor of Milton Keynes, Councillor Katrina Morris, the leader of the Council, Councillor Andrew Geary, as well as other partners, along with students, staff, alumni and tutors. And we'll be joined later by our two MPs, Ian Stewart and Mark Lancaster. But at this point, welcome to our stage, our guest Olympians, Alan Campbell. Alex Danson. Etienne Stott. And Han Richardson. So you thought it was cold outside, it's definitely getting warmer inside. Welcome. Please make yourselves comfortable. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Martin Bean. For those of that don't know me, I am the very proud Vice-Chancellor of the Open University, and I just want to take a moment to welcome, welcome you, not just as uh, our super sporting heroes, but as our, our students and one graduate as well. So fantastic to have you uh, at the Open University. Um, this is actually the second time this year I've uh, had the chance to hang out with some uh, Olympic superstars. Uh, earlier in the year, I uh, was in Rio, and I actually got to spend a little bit of time with two of our other Olympic gold medalists as uh, we got to hand over to, uh, to Rio the uh, sort of the, 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 the baton of uh, working with them uh, over the next uh, Olympic Games, which was really, really fantastic. Um, this location that we've picked today isn't quite the splendor or grandeur of Stratford's brilliant new stadium, but I do think it's apt that we're gathered somewhere today that for most of the week is a sports hall. We thought that was our most appropriate for you. So I hope everyone is wearing their non-marking shoes. Otherwise, the badminton team is going to be very cranky with me uh, next week. Um, unfortunately, our budget didn't stretch to having the Queen jump out of a helicopter here today. Um, but in many other ways, it's just like uh, Danny Boyle's epic because, uh, after all, he had a collection of truly awesome athletes on his stage. Uh, and at this point, once again, why don't we just take a moment just to give our, our warm appreciation to the guests that we've got here today for everything that they achieved. Let's give them another big round of applause. So as November draws to a close and with Christmas looming on the horizon, the heady days of London's Olympic summer are beginning to fade into the distance a little. But what a summer it was. That golden night in the stadium when the world was introduced to the MOBOT, record crowds flocking to the Paralympics to see the word disabled being redefined for a whole generation. And above all, Team GB finishing higher than France, twice. In fact, it was three times, if you count beating Paris to host the 2012 Games in the first place. Of course, it wasn't just a great summer of sport for Britain and for London. It was great for the Open University, too. Sixteen of our students and alumni competed for Great Britain and Northern Ireland in the Olympics and Paralympics, winning three gold, two silver, and three bronze medals between them. 
On an athletes to medals ratio, I think that's probably more than Australia managed, although you'll forgive the mayor and I for not dwelling on that particular point for too long this morning. So why did so many Open University students achieve so much this summer? Well, I think there are two key factors that are rooted in the relationship between the OU and its students. First, there's flexibility. Open University students come from all backgrounds, from all walks of life. Most of them continue to work while they learn, fitting their studies around their hectic lives. And that flexibility allows you to achieve so much more. Whether you're the taxi driver who works on his TMAs in between picking up fares at Milton Keynes stations, or Etienne Stott studying for his psychology course in between picking up European and Olympic gold medals. The other factor is dedication. It's obviously something you need if you're an Olympian or para-Olympian. And it's something OU students have in bucketfuls. Because being an OU student is absolutely no picnic. We have extremely high standards. We push our students extremely hard. It takes some measure of dedication just to embark on a course of higher education. But to do so while holding down a job, raising a family, or representing your country in international competition, that's something else entirely. So when you take the flexibility we offer and the dedication we demand, you get two of the ingredients needed to be an Olympian or para-Olympian. And that's why we saw so many OU students, past and present, achieving so much this summer. You did amazing. You made us all very, very proud. Very proud. And we mustn't forget the other people with OU connections who made London 2012 the huge success it was. We're joined today by two of our alumni who served as torchbearers, helping to unite and excite the nation before the games even began. And then there were those legendary games makers, the volunteers who impressed the world with their total commitment and ceaseless enthusiasm. A number of OU staff headed down to London to play their part, and you can still see the occasional pink and purple jacket making its way around campus during the week. But more than anything, today is about our amazing athletes. Over on the other side of Buckinghamshire, Team GB's rowers collected a staggering nine Olympic medals on the water of Eton Dorney. Among them was the bronze claimed by Allen, the first single skulls medal won by a UK athlete since 1928. Alan, perf yeah. you know, Alan defines that spirit of dedication I mentioned earlier, committing 16 years of his life to his sport as he slowly climbed or rather quickly sculled his way to the top. But despite the demands placed on a world-class oarsman, the 5 a.m. starts, the endless gym sessions, the brutal cross-training, Alan still found time to exercise his mind. In 2009, he completed an OU certificate in business studies, helping to set himself up for his post-rowing career. And as we were just chatting before we came in, I think there's a very good chance we might be able to get him to come back and study a little bit more. He is, he is actually looking at a competing institution right now. So as you mix with him today, tell him what a travesty it would be not to study with uh, the university ranked a couple of months ago as having the highest student satisfaction of any university in the United Kingdom. So uh, uh, do I need to have any more dedication, no, Alan, no, or have no I got you, got you sold? Um, okay, so like uh, all the university's Olympic and Paralympic heroes, Alan is a real inspiration to us all, and I'm so happy that I can welcome him to the stage now to share his story 
on how he reached his Olympic ambition. Ladies and gentlemen, give him a big round of applause. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Vice-Chancellor, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, lecturers and fellow alumni of the Open University, it is with immense honour I stand here before you today on this day to celebrate the OU and its connection to the Olympic Games. This summer was uh, like a summer of no other. It really put Britain on the map. London became the centre of the world for the last for three and a half weeks during the Olympics and Paralympics. And uh, I really think it was you know, a phenomenal testament to the British spirit. And I think people around the world really saw something very special in London and in uh, the United Kingdom. Now, the Vice-Chancellor mentioned a few words today, flexibility and dedication uh, of what it took to be an OU student and also to be uh, an Olympian. I'd like to add four more words today to that. Uh, the first of these words is the word inspired. Now, as a boy, I was greatly inspired by my parents. They weren't rich or particularly famous, but they were very hardworking. And basically, just through their good attitude to life and the very same values that they had, they inspired me to always reach and aim for the stars. Um, I've also been inspired more recently um, by my rowing coaches. Uh, my 92-year-old grandmother still inspires me today. Um, but also, I've been really inspired by fellow uh, Olympians, none more so than Sir Steve Redgrave, five times Olympic gold medalist, and more recently Chris Hoy, the greatest ever track cyclist uh, to ever uh, set foot on a bike. I mean, who couldn't be inspired? But along here also, within my studies within the OU, I've been inspired by the staff for the fact that they have actually lived and breathed the, the jobs and the sort of the, the ambition that I would have outside of my rowing. Uh, they've been in those positions of uh, businessmen and business leaders, uh, and uh, I feel you know, they're actually poised and giving me the best opportunities in my education to move forward. Um, and I think through the fact that they are now dedicated to helping to teach and to help us learn from them, I think is a great inspiration for all of us that is going forward. Now, I slightly touched on in the dedication, but the way I would describe determination is something very unique. And something that probably uh, is probably not used in all walks of life, but in sport is a multiplier. A multiplier in terms of the output uh, and the result that you can get at the end of it. For the last 10 years, uh, seven days a week, 11 months of the year, uh, I've got up every morning before six o'clock, getting only one day off every three to four weeks. Um, and I would train every single one of those days, including Christmas Day when I would run not just on level ground, but up and down the sand hills of the north coast of Northern Ireland uh, when I go home to see my parents. And, um, you know, this is just a small sign of my determination to want to succeed. Um, I mean, and, you know, I've countless other sort of, uh, you know, examples, none more so than looking back at uh, my second Olympic Games in Beijing. Um, two months before, I'd had a knee operation from uh, septicemia, from blood poisoning, um, through basically a, a cut I'd had in my mouth, went all the way through my body, settled. The surgeon came to me two months before the Games and said it was unlikely I'd be able to walk in time to go to the Games, let alone compete. But I was determined, even though I was in a great deal of pain, to actually make sure that I could get myself to those Games, having dedicated the last four years building up towards that uh, from Athens to make sure that I could be in the best possible position. 
So working with my fantastic team of people I had around me, I called them Team Misery, um, they got me back on my feet, got me back in a boat, um, but, and only with uh, you know, weeks to go, it was, it was very sort of hit and miss whether or not I'd make the games. Somehow I managed to make the games, compete, and I came in a, a credible fifth place. Uh, and again, I'd say you know, determination is something that is an absolute multiplier. And I know in that situation that I was, you know, my, my efforts were multiplied just by the fact that I was so determined to leave no stone unturned to make sure that I could achieve that. And I say success at any level depends on gut determination. And here at the OU, there's a huge emphasis put onto the students to fulfill their own ambition for their own determination to succeed. I know that the medal that I myself and my fellow Olympians hold before you today is only a piece of metal. But similar to the degrees and diplomas that are handed out by the Open University, they are a mark and representation of the determination of the students to want to succeed and to want to better themselves and go on to bigger and better things. Pride is another word I'd add. And I take pride in my performances as an athlete um, at every race. I am sometimes disappointed, but that doesn't mean that I haven't given it everything that I've got. And I realize that others have outperformed me, and that makes me try harder. Now, I'm proud of what I achieved at the Olympics, and I'm also proud of the whole team of rowers and the, the whole Team GB uh, and being part of that team. It was our best performance ever. You only have to look back as far as 96 in Atlanta when we came home with only a solitary one gold medal. At these Olympics, we brought back 29 gold medals, 65 medals in total. Um, it was a fantastic achievement, ranking third and beating the French, as was rightly pointed out, uh, on the medal table. And um, I, to be honest, we belong here to a great team at the OU. Being part of not only the, the largest university in the United Kingdom, but one of the largest in the world, uh, is a very unique experience. And I am proud to be a member of the OU and to be associated with a long list of fellow alumni, none more so than the Queen of Northern Ireland, Dame Mary Peters, who I'm sure you'll hear from later. The final word, and I would again say that this is probably the, one of the most important words and probably one of the most uh, best ways of describing Olympians and also fellow OU alumni is the word passionate. And I suggest that people don't reach their potential, whether it be in work or what they're interested in, without passion. I can tell you from the age of 13, I've been passionate about rowing. I've been lucky enough to take it to its greatest heights and competing at three Olympic Games, a home Olympics, and winning an Olympic medal. But there was a total of 542 athletes from the whole of Great Britain that made up this year's Team GB. And it's quite a small number, if you think about it, that represented the whole of Great Britain. But one thing I'd say that all of us had in common within that team, and it was a fantastic team to be part of, was passion for our sport. And it is a feeling that cannot be explained. It is the passion that puts a spring in your step. It's the passion that keeps you inspired to be the best that you can be. It's the passion that makes you determined to prepare thoroughly to perform brilliantly and to keep going against all the odds. And it's the passion that makes you proud of what you do. Now, the OU has a passion for helping people achieve and fulfill their passions through its open entry policy. If you have a passion to learn, they have a passion to teach. And I would say that that passion is something that 
is inspiring me. I only mentioned that I was looking at another course. <laughs> but what I was saying, what I did go on to say was actually it didn't fit in with my lifestyle. Training to be an athlete and training to go and win an Olympic medal takes a huge amount of dedication that I've talked about. It takes up a lot of time. The OU fits in around my lifestyle and it helps me achieve what I want to achieve. After 2016, I'm planning to go on to Rio, um, as are a number of the athletes, all the athletes here, I think, as well. Um, and I feel that, you know, for the support of the Open University, we can hopefully put ourselves in a position to be able to get a job and to get a successful job after we leave uh, our, our rowing. Now, the OU's motto is uh, learn and live. One of the mottos we had within Team GB um, was better never stops. So important was this motto that on our, uh, this is actually one of the Olympic blazers, uh, the, the, the kit that we had, we wore this obviously past the games. So when the games was over and done, this is the piece, one item of clothing as such that we get to continually wear. And so important was the better never stop was that it was actually embroidered onto the collar of the blazer. <laughs> and what I would say is better never stops here for the OU. The moment people come in and pass through the doors of the OU and continue on, they're actually coming here to better themselves and go on to bigger and better things. And I would say that, you know, for the Open University for yourself, you are the largest in Britain. You're not the largest in the world just yet. But better never stops. And one day I can see the OU going from strength to strength to being one of the biggest, largest and greatest universities in the world. And I'm very proud to be part of that. Now, just on behalf of the athletes here, I'd like to thank you all uh, so much for all the support that you've given us, not just as students, but also as athletes. Um, again, I, you know, I can't tell you how great a summer it was. The three and a half weeks of the Olympics and Paralympics was just like no other. Two of the greatest weeks of my life were competing at those games. Um, and I would say that you know, all the support that we had from the home crowd really made a difference. The last 500 metres of my race... I know that the crowd lifted me and there was like another person in my boat helping lift me across that line. And I know it was the same for, I think, a lot of the other guys. I think Etienne was quite shocked when he won his gold, who was. Uh, and I know that, you know, the home advantage really did make a difference. But we have an OU advantage going forward. And we hope that with your continued support that we can continue to go on. And hopefully we'll sit here all as gold medalists in after Rio, but hopefully there'll be a, lot, a, a larger number of athletes as well. And uh, so please, a round of applause for yourselves for the support you've given us because you were all instrumental in helping us achieve our dreams and our medals. Thank you so much. very much a beautiful word. If you have a passion to learn, we have a passion to teach. I could use that. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. I'll give it to you for free. <laughs> <laughs> no, real, really appreciated. Uh, I, you, you talked about inspiration. Your speech was inspiring. And we have an opportunity now to hear from all our athletes in a question-answer session. Uh, typically of the OU, we're about excellence, but we're also about inclusion. So this is an opportunity for any or all of you to ask questions. Um, I've got one about this whole motivation question, motivation determination. It's just, it is really hard to fathom 
how much motivation, discipline you put into winning. Just, can you just explain us to us how you managed to keep it up, that sort of commitment? Yeah, I think um, certainly I can speak. Helen and I were both part of the women's hockey team. And I think if you think of motivation, I remember the closing of Beijing and watching the final. And I remember closing my eyes and wondering what it would be like to be at a home games and stand on a podium with a gold medal. And I actually was, I feel like the luckiest person on the planet because there was 28 other women that felt exactly the same. And if you talk about motivation, for us, every day, we spoke about being gold in our behaviours, gold in our mentality, gold in our intent to training, yeah. and always being our absolute best. And of course, there are days when it is horrible because you're tired. But for me, and I think for my team, and as I said, I was the luckiest person on the planet because we had an amazing team that felt the same. We used to just close our eyes and imagine what it would feel like in London to perhaps win that medal. And to have a Games at home, that was an opportunity that we could just never pass on. And that's what kept us going. Oh, that's great. Helen, what was your experience? Yeah, you know, I'd echo what Alex said. Um, <clears throat> I've been playing in the international team for 13 years now. And uh, I went to Sydney as an 18-year-old. And that was an amazing experience to, to walk out in front of a... a a 16,000 strong crowd full of Aussie fans, um, <laughs> as it was. And, however, that was also tainted with disappointment because we came eighth. And, you know, we're all competitive people. We all want to go to an Olympic Games, not just to, to go there, but to, to win medals. And, you know, London gave us the opportunity to really do our best and give it everything. And... You know, we as a hockey team, the women's hockey team weren't going to pass that up. And Alex is right. You know, there were 30 odd ambitious women that wanted to make a, a change. We didn't want to continue to keep coming eighth or sixth like we did in Beijing. We wanted to to do better and be the best that we could be. And you know, fortunately, I'm sitting here today with a, a bronze medal because of that. And that is all the motivation I need. <laughs> and Etienne, what's it like? I mean, I suppose for me, you know, when I started, you know, when you're, you're young and I started, I just wanted to win and beat people and, <laughs> you know, that's what it was all about to some degree, but uh, as with most things, you, you're always going to end up being beaten and you're not always going to win and I kind of decided to find a more robust and meaningful motivation and it was simply, you know, to develop myself and to, to improve on the things that I wanted to improve on and to, you know, develop in ways that I wanted to, to, to go. And, you know, I think you've got to have a, a dream or an idea of something that you want to do or someone that you want to be or things you want to achieve. And then setting about doing them is an amazing privilege. You know, so many people around, you know, in the world don't really get to do that. Simple as that. It's just not possible. We've got amazing support, you know, in an amazing country where you can... You know, basically, if you've got an idea, there's ways of making it happen. And to be, like, behaving, you know, that personally excellent way, you know, pushing things forward all the time, it was a real, it's a real privilege. And the motivation just to be better at everything, you know, like, better never stops that idea, just trying to be a better person in whatever way you want to, make your own criteria and, you know, set about achieving them. That's a really cool thing to do. And for me, that's, that's 
no problem at all to get out of bed and get it on, get it done. Fantastic. Better never stops. Let's hear your questions. <coughs> ah, this one always a bit yeah. shy at the start of these things. Yeah. And perhaps you could just say who you are as well. So, uh, uh, Mike, we'll get to you. I'll come to you in the moment. John, just one behind. Yeah, John next. Okay. Um, uh, my name's Ben Oakley. Uh, I've got an interest in sport, obviously. Yes. And uh, I'm interested to hear about what critical moments you faced that might have been very traumatic over the last 10 years, that if you had to identify one, what critical moment would that be that was a, was a, was a turning point for you? Yeah. If we go along that way... Yeah, well, I mean, I think I mentioned it briefly, so did, was uh, the, uh, the, the septicemia I had before Beijing, uh, and haven't had, you know, I'd had almost my, my plan of attack and how I was going to go and win that gold medal from, from Athens, where I'd come 12th in a men's quadruple skull, and got myself up to being the, the top single sculler in Britain, to them being ranked in the world uh, in the single scholars, to then hopefully be in a position to win a medal at those games, and a gold at that. And, um, you know, the, the World Cup season started, I actually won a gold at the start of that season, so it did internationally, and I felt everything was ready, but this kind of took me very left wing, it came out of nowhere, and, um, it, you know, it completely crippled me in some ways, but, uh, you know, I, I had to really rely on the team of people around me uh, to help me, you know, achieve and, and get myself back on my feet, uh, and just sort of that was, it was very painful, it was very, very hard, um, it was very, very tough, but, you know, I had to show a lot of resilience, and I think resilience is a really important factor as well for a lot of athletes, is just yes. to be able to sort of face, you know, when things don't go right, but from that point onwards, it really sort of changed, you know, I can push myself harder, um, you know, and it's great when things go well, but whenever things don't go well, it's actually you learn a lot more, you, um, and, and it makes you a better version of yourself as well at that point um, and going forward then I went on to get a, you know new British records after that and you know I've won four medals now in the last four years at the world championships and the Olympic Games um, and again you know with the way things went this year things kind of went well I was like actually I can go better again and I can do more and that's kind of you know that experience from then uh, has pushed me on to want to go to Rio again. Um, if I talk about critical moments, there's of course every single one of us, we've had kind of tough bits and bits where things have changed and have really challenged us. But my one critical moment was actually really positive and it completely changed how I thought, not just about sport, but actually about everything. Um, and it was four years ago and it was in a room at Bisham Abbey. And I used to think, particularly as a youngster, that big decisions and big successful people made big decisions in big rooms and <laughs> oh, I don't know if they do <laughs> um, but um, for us this was the biggest decision that completely changed my life in so many ways and the path that I took and how I felt and how I thought and it was in Bisham Abbey with 30 of my teammates who for me there is nothing that makes me feel more proud than to be part of a team there is nothing that makes me feel more proud than to have something you aspire to do so much that you will dedicate everything you have. And we sat in that room four years out from London and we made a very simple promise to ourselves that for me has transcended into every part of my life. And we said we were desperate more than anything, and I'll be completely honest, we wanted that gold medal so much 
so much. And I remember being sat in that room, and a part of me thought, but we've never won a medal at a, a major tournament in a World Cup. I've never won that. And someone in the room said, who are we not to dream? Who are we not to give it our best? Who are we not to set ourselves the highest standards? And that just changed something in me. And to be a part of a team of 30 incredible individuals and amazing set of support team around us and live every day to be gold and to live every day to be my best and to be our best is something for the rest of my life I will, I will never forget and I'll always try to keep and it's the best lesson that sport has ever taught me. And yes, we got to London and it isn't quite as shiny as we'd dreamt about, but I can have no regrets because we gave our best and we did our best and for the rest of my life I'll feel very, very proud to have been a part of, of that wider and that big team. I mean, for me, um, in my critical moment, I'm one of them. I mean, there's, there's so many in, in the path of any athlete. You know, I've been coming for 20 years. But for me, it was about 18 months before the Games and I was in a hospital bed. I just had the surgery, keel surgery on my shoulder. I dislocated it in training in a, in a, in a crash in our boat in, in training about a week before. And I don't know if it was a combination of, you know, the general anaesthetic and the different sort of stuff they pump into you to make you feel good about yourself. Um, but I had this, uh, had this sort of idea, you know, I, I couldn't call it like a vision. It wasn't quite like that. But the idea popped into my head and it was like, what, wouldn't that be a great story to be able to say to somebody, you know, 18 months before winning the gold medal, I literally, I, I was, everything was gone. You know, when we crashed our boat that day and my shoulder fell out, came out, you know, the whole thing just went up in, in smoke. You know, the, the whole structure just crumbled to the ground. And I thought to myself, you know, wouldn't it be a cool story to be able to say to somebody, that's what I did. It's, it was a shot, you know, such a long, long, long shot to, to do that. And I sort of had this idea and I almost saw like a, a red thread, I think it was, you know, kind of just disappearing into the distance from where I was there into the, to the future. And the end was a, a gold medal podium with me and Tim stood on it. And I was like, yeah, somehow, you know, amazingly and through a huge amount of effort on our part and our team and the people around us and, you know, little elements of good luck and all these all the things, it's, it's a, such a long shot and it managed to come about and I can't say how and why it happened, it's not my department but you know, it was just an amazing, uh, an amazing thing to have done and that was for me one of the, just one of those things, one of those moments, it was amazing to, be, to, to live that, you know, to live that idea, you can't ask for anything more. Um, well, as soon as the question was asked, I thought exactly what Alex said. That for, for our team was the critical moment. We, we decided to change, and, and that's what we did. Um, so I guess as a, for an individual point, um, point of view, I, my critical moment came when I was 21. Um, I'd already been to an Olympic Games in Sydney, and I got injured. I ended up having three operations on my ankle. I was out of the game for two years. And in Sydney, um, I've already said it was disappointing, but we, we watched the final there. And during the final, there was, after the final, there was the medal ceremony. And during that medal ceremony, I looked at the women on that podium. And our manager at the time, he turned to me and he said, that'll be you one day. And I... 
I looked at him and I looked at the women on that, on that podium and I thought, yeah, that is what I want to do. That's really desperately what I want to do. And I, I wanted to be at the top of that podium. Um, and after that moment, two years later, I got injured. I was out of the game for two years. A, one surgeon said to me, you won't ever get to the level you played at before. And to hear those words, I, you know, two years ago, I'd set my vision. I wanted to win gold at Olympic Games. And to hear those words were, you know, really painful. I didn't have much else. I wasn't really academic at that time. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, sport was my passion. Sport is my passion. I love playing sport. And to have those words said to me was painful. And it took a lot of hard work, um, lots of dedication, determination, all those things. And in that time, actually, I learned a lot about myself. I, uh, I learned how to actually train properly. Um, I'm, I'm technically, I'm very good at, at lots of sports, but phys physically, I'm not an athlete. Um, well, I wasn't, but now I can say I'm an athlete because I learned how to train properly. I set myself small goals to get myself back. Um, I lost about 8 or 10K. Um, so, yeah, in hindsight, that really crappy time in my life has propelled me to, to where I am now um, and has made me, as, as Alan said, you know, a much stronger um, person and a much stronger athlete. A great question, Ben. Now let's hear from John, John Darcy. Thanks very much, Lucy. And, um, in my spare time, I'm the Vice Chairman of Sport Northern Ireland, which is one of the development agencies across the four nations. And the key thing about London 2012 was to inspire a generation. Well, Team GB did that beyond our wildest dreams. What steps should the sport agencies across the four nations take to make sure that you continue, that we continue to inspire the next generation so we're getting more medals in Rio, but also inspiring more people to think about taking up sport. Well, I mean, going from Northern Ireland, uh, I mean, there's a clear example of where Queen's University themselves usually had about sort of 50 rowers a year sign up, and they had a dropout rate where it usually dropped down to about 10, 10 students from each year would end up rowing, which is quite a small number. This year they had 300 athletes sign up, so they did, and they've retained 50 of them. But the problem they're facing there is that they're struggling to have the resources and the personnel to be able to, to facilitate for all 300. Um, and, I, and I would say that, you know, investment, more investment of, of money, but continuous investment as well is really essential. And I know that it sort of seems like we spend a lot of money on sport for these games, but again... People who do education and people who do sport are trying to better themselves. So direct investment in education and in sport is a direct investment in people who want to better themselves. So it's a very good outcome. It is, and I mean the statistics speak for themselves of you know the the correlation between you know those and kids in sport and those not in sport and how they actually you know how they turn out later in life and what they go on to become and do. Um, and I'd say that sport has taught me a lot of tools, uh, has given me a lot of tools in life uh, to live a good life. Um, and I would say that, you know, it, it does require just a, you know, a high level of investment. That's one side, but also getting the right people and enthusiastic volunteers to help facilitate that. Because we as athletes, we can inspire on those three and a half weeks of the Games and the Paralympics. But after that point, it's very hard to be in the face of young people um, and the people that really make that difference are the, the coaches and volunteers that come down and give up their own time and transfer their passion on. So 
getting the right people in and continue to, to invest um, in facilities and everything else. I know that for hockey, I mean, yeah, it's a big difference. I think um, my second passion is in education. And if it wasn't for my PE teacher, I never, ever would have played the sport. And if it wasn't for my first amazing coach, I'd never have been given the opportunity to play hockey. So yeah. that's actually why I even started the Open University, because I, I would love to be, if I can do for one person what that teacher did for me, I would forever feel incredibly lucky and very, very proud. So I would say almost the most important thing is our coaches, our PE teachers, our volunteers, they are, they are our inspiration, every single one of us will have started from somewhere and the chance of it being from someone as magical as that is very, very high. I think if you did a poll over Olympians, it would be their teachers or their coaches that, or a volunteer that inspired them. So if we can provide and or the right coaching, the right education, the right support can be provided for those incredible people that give up their time and allow us to, my life has been set out and a path has been made by two incredible people. And one was a volunteer coach and one was my PE teacher. And I think the more support and the more help that they can have, the more of the athletes will be created and the next generation will be completely and totally inspired. Yeah, I mean, you've got to echo um, these ideas. There's not much <coughs> to add, really. I think the volunteers make all sports at the grassroots. You know, it, uh, Team GB was selected, in fact, at events run in, almost entirely by volunteers. And, you know, the athletes can do their bit to, you know, to get the fire nice and hot at the games, you know, to inspire people. And, you know, we can do our bit kind of raking the embers to keep the, to keep the warmth going a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's kind of keeping people, you know, valuing the volunteers who do that work. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about the games makers this year, but that's really what set the background. And I think people maybe in this country will see actually volunteering is just a real good thing to do. It doesn't have to be in sports. It can be in almost anything. The voluntary backbone, you know, of that of the whole Olympics and of the whole all the all the athletes really, is what it is what make the difference, and what starts it rolling and what keeps it going. At, you know, at, at the at the pit face sort of thing. So we need to kind of value those volunteers, help them, encourage them, provide them the resources. You know, people, you know, after, uh, volunteers will do anything they can to keep going. But if they've got resources to improve themselves you know, improve what they deliver, that's great. And that comes down to, you know, financial support possibly, but just also just moral support, you know, and people saying this is a great thing that these people are doing. And uh, hopefully that's what's going to turn this inspiration, which is like hot air into actual, you know, people doing stuff in all things. I don't think it has to be about sports. It can be in almost any area. I think that's most important for me. Uh, yeah, I think the only thing I would add is, is the, <clears throat> the role of each sports association. So I can mm -hmm. obviously talk about hockey and, uh, you know, the work that they did in, mm -hmm. I guess, ever since they found out London, um, the Olympics was coming to London, was fantastic. They, you know, set up a, a whole load of schemes, like things like Back to Hockey, which is aimed at, at women in particular who may have played hockey at school or university and, you know, the drop-off um, for, for, for girls in sport is huge. You know, they go from, from primary to secondary, secondary to, to university, university to work, work, children, life. It gets in the way. And, you know, that back-to-hockey scheme is fantastic. You know, it's aimed at women who have played 
played the game to, to get back. There's things like rush hockey, so for young professionals that want to just go down to like a local five-a-side football pitch and they, the sticks and balls are all there. So those kind of things hockey have implemented. Um, I think outside the stadium, at the, I don't know if anyone went to the, the hockey um, at the Olympics, but outside the stadium there was a, a little mini blue and pink pitch which thousands and thousands <laughs> of kids and, and maybe adults, I don't know, played hockey on the same pitch that we did. Um, and that has really inspired loads of people to, to pick up a stick in particular. Um, and it's that support from the associations that is so important to to put it out there, make it accessible, and then have the mm. support network of the, the volunteers to keep it going. Um, just I'd add also, it's not <coughs> quite just inspiring young people to be the future Olympic champions. I mean, that is important, but just inspiring everyone to do, you know, not everyone can win an Olympic gold medal, but everyone can achieve a personal best. And just, I think, giving people the tools to actually just better themselves in some small way, just achieving a personal best, playing a match, rowing a race, um, just doing that one thing can really make a difference. And that, that inspiration can really sort of help that person to go on to do other things to that level as well. Um, any more questions? Yes, we've got a flurry of hands, so I'll just take a few questions, keep them brief, and then we'll ask the panel. Hi, um, I'm Eleanor Nixon, and um, I remember the moment that it was announced that London had the Olympic Games, and I remember sat there on my sofa ready to text my best friend with a yay text, because I was so certain we were going to get it. Do you remember how you felt and where you were when we found out we were getting the Games? <laughs> Great question. I was in Lucerne in Switzerland actually at a race. Um, I was competing at part of our World Cup series and uh, we were actually, we watched it on TV just before we went out to race and we won the first ever bronze medal for Great Britain in the men's quadruple skull that day. And so it definitely <laughs> inspired us because we were like, the games are coming to London. And, uh, you know, I think for a lot of athletes, there was quite a few athletes, you know, probably would have retired after Beijing but that stayed on. Um, because of the fact it was at home and it, you know, it was phenomenal. The unfortunate thing about London is that we will never really experience as great a Games as that ever again in our lifetime um, because it was just so unique. Okay, a few more questions. Yes, oh. one there. Uh, yeah, uh, Neil Hopkins, I'm a student. Uh, I'd just like to say thank you because um, all, all the Olympians have inspired me to take up sport this summer and get fit, so that, that's really been fantastic. Uh, but my question is, how do you balance sport and study? Because you're all uh, students, you're all uh, sports people. Great question. We'll come back to just in just one moment. And one question there. I'm Ilana Roth. I'm a psychologist in the Department of Life, Health and Chemical Sciences. Um, I'm really interested to know if there's a particular connection between um, your commitment to sport and your choice of degree. Obviously, I'm particularly interested to know whether, um, uh, uh, from Etienne and um, Helen, why they've chosen psychology, but for all of you. <laughs> all right, great. Do you want to take those questions? So a question about balance between sport and study, uh, and then the question about, you know, wh so whatever the choice. One, we'll give a psychology one, shall we? Okay. Um, balancing sport and study has... It is, it is very difficult, it, because I think the nature of the Open University, why it's so fantastic, is it is the flexibility it does offer. And it tends to be that every student is either working full-time, or for us it was obviously playing sport full-time. For me... We'd be out training all day, and I'll be really honest, sometimes coming home at half seven and getting your books out, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. But I said my passion is almost split over my sport, and 
for as long as I can remember, before I even considered that perhaps I would ever be lucky enough to go to Olympic Games, is I wanted to be a PE teacher. Um, and I think, for me, that passion is so strong. And my route into, into teaching has to be through a degree. But I was very, very lucky. I was got into the national team when I was 16, which meant the route to university and going away was very, very difficult. And when I heard about the Open University and the flexibility that it offered, and it meant that I could be at my training venue, I could effectively train full-time and still study in my evenings, it was a really great route. But in terms of balance, I think, as you will say, it is having that, that thing inside you that you know you want to do. And for me, I know I want to teach. And unfortunately, I know I can't play this game, which if I could for the rest of my life, I absolutely would. Um, but teaching is my other passion, and this is my way to it. And I see that it's my path, and I see my goal so strong that this is what I have to do. I mean, just to answer the question about psychology, I mean, having work, worked in canoeing or done canoeing for so long and done, done sports, it it seems to me we, we've worked under an amazing psychology system this, this last few years uh, that has been developed by uh, Dr. Steve Peters, who works with the British cycling team. We work with a psychologist called Katie Warriner. And the system that I've learned about, um, and over the years I've been interested in it in general, but some of the ideas that are, that are in it and the way that it explains my behaviour, my feelings, and the way I feel about things, and the way that these environments that we find ourselves in affect us is very, very robust. It's very interesting. It really kind of uh, explains so many things. And it explains, again, why people also act in ways that you're not necessarily sure they should. And, you know, way, way, the best and worst of people, this system seems to me to be able to help to explain those things. And I've kind of been interested in that. And to be honest, some of the ideas that I've come across almost seem to be wasted in, in sports, to be honest, that they have great, great potential. You know, I almost wonder if we should keep them secret in our country. Um, to, you know, but I, I really passionately believe that, you know, if I could be, basically, I need to be credible enough to be able to talk about them from a proper scientific background. They are backed scientifically, but for me to be able to speak about them, I need to know my stuff. But some of the ideas are so powerful and they can help people hugely. And I actually believe sport is, you know, is a part of life. It's not life itself. And I think that some of the ideas, I'd love to be able to help people to learn about them because they are amazing. And I just think that it's going to take me about another 20 years before I can actually be credible to tell them. But maybe I will. <laughs> Yeah, mine, um, mine grew through, through sport. Um, I was always more interested in the physical side of the body. Um, so I actually started a human biology degree when I was left school, um, but it wasn't for me. And I, over my, the course of my career, having disappointment after disappointment, um, and you know, looking at teams like the Dutch and the Argentinians and thinking, why are they always up there? What is it about them? And... You know, you look at their skills, you look at the technique, things like that, and you, they're not that much better than us that, in that sense. So what is it about them? And when we made that decision in February 2009 to, to change, and that wasn't anything to do with, you know, obviously we, you know, we spent a lot more time together, but it was all kind of up here that made the change. We had to, actually in that room when we made that decision to change, um, People actually struggled just to say the word gold. 
So how were we ever going to win gold if we couldn't say it? Um, and that's all up here. Why, why do, you know, what is it? Is it about belief? Things like that. And that I, over these last few years, I really have found another passion, and that is psychology. Um, and I'm so happy that I found something else. That, and the Open University just gives me that chance to study that and kind of put a bit of theory behind the, the experience that I've had. Um, and, you know, I would love to go into psychology after I've finished playing hockey, um, you know, whether it's sports psych or something like that. It's or whether it's just yeah, it's potentially as interesting as a sport that we do absolutely. right now, I guess. Yeah. And that's kind of, you need something else to do, I yeah. guess. So, yeah, sport has grown my passion for psychology, absolutely. Yeah. Alex? But I think it is wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Great questions, great panel, a big round of applause. Cast your mind back 40 years. 1972 was not without its tragedy and sorrow, but also its triumph and joy. Our next guest is Dame Mary Peters. Dame Mary was a great inspiration to me and my generation, generations since. I was only a little boy then. Remember that? <laughs> All right. And still. Um, just think back of the Munich Olympics and Dame Mary's most notable success was winning the gold medal in the pentathlon, setting a new world record. Ladies and gentlemen, give a warm round of applause to Dame Mary Peters. Thank you so much for your very warm welcome. I'm um, honoured to be a proud recipient of an honorary Open University degree from uh, Belfast, and it's lovely to see the director here today, John Darcy. Um, I was asked to speak about the comparison between 1972 and and, uh, 2012, and of course my my story is history, and... um, you probably don't know anything about it because you weren't born. But, uh, <laughs> but I go back even further to the 1964 Olympic Games when I was chosen to compete in the pentathlon for Great Britain. And I shared a room with three other athletes. Mary Rand, who was a golden girl of that era, who won a gold, a silver, and a bronze. And Anne Packer, who won a gold and a silver. And Mary P. was fourth. And I was very proud to be fourth best in the world, as Alan was to be fifth when he uh, competed in Beijing. But they hammered a nail into the bedroom wall so that they would have somewhere to hang their medals. I didn't, because I didn't think I was going to win one. But it was the first time the pentathlon had been in the Olympic program, and I was very, very proud to represent my country. And then in 1968, I went to Crystal Palace to train with Mary Rand in preparation for the Mexico Olympics. And she said to me, who sponsors you? And I said, sorry? And she said, who sponsored you? And I said, I don't have a sponsor. And she said, but whose shoes do you wear? And I said, my school gutties. And I had a pair of spikes. (laughs) And I'd already competed at the Olympics. And I had no idea that you could get free 
gear. So uh, Derek Ibbotson, who was uh, the representative of Puma, who was a world record holder in the 1500 metres, Mary rang um, Derek and said, Mary doesn't have a sponsor. And he arrived with a bag of kit. And boy, was I very lucky. <laughs> and I stayed with them through the rest of my career. But I had shoes that I never knew existed. Like, I didn't know you had to have special shoes to do the long jump. And then when the Fosbury flop came in, you had to have special shoes to go over the bar backwards and so on. So I had a very steep learning curve coming from Northern Ireland and not being uh, worldly wise. But before I went to the Munich Olympics, being my third Olympics, and, and incidentally I was ninth in, in Mexico, and the reason probably was I, was in, I did have an injury, but also I was made captain of the British team, and I was criticised afterwards for taking those duties too, too seriously and looking every, after everybody else instead of myself. However, by 1972, I was 33. I still worked full-time. I had no track to train on because the university track, which was the only one in Belfast, was full of potholes. So I did most of my training in an indoor arena, something similar to this. I trained with a pole vaulter who was um, doing his exercises down one side of the gym, and I was doing them down the other side of the gym, putting a leather shot, high jumping into his high jump, uh, his pole vault bed, um, going over hurdles, but over a very short distance. But I knew that for the first time in my life that I was going to go to Munich and win gold. And I'd, I worked really hard. I had a coach, and that was it. No psychologist, no physiologist, no physiotherapy, no nothing. Just a squeeze on the arm and just do it. <laughs> uh, no one in Britain expected me to be successful, but I had that dream. I, as I said, didn't have any sponsorship. I was taken out by the journalists in Northern Ireland the night before I left for Munich, and as I sat drinking my gin and tonics, and I'm ashamed to say, having a cigarette, <laughs> they said to me, how well do you think you're going to do? And I said, oh, I'm going for gold. And they went, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> the pentathlon um, means that you do the hurdles, the high jump, the shot put, the long jump, and the 200 metres. And so uh, when you don't have the facilities to do it, it's, it's quite difficult. But um, so much of it was in the mind, and so much of it was in the opportunity of being in the right place at the right time and people wanting to support me. I wasn't the best athlete in the world, but I became the best athlete because I believed that I was. And I went back to Munich recently to meet up with my nearest rival, who was the local German girl called Heidi Rosendahl. And I said to her, the morning of the competition, your coach came to me and said, you're favorite, you're number one. And I said, why would he do that to me? Because he gave me so much confidence. And she said, but you were the best. And we believed you were going to win. And you were British, and you weren't going to let anybody beat you. So it was nice to know that others had the faith in me that I had in myself. 1972 was another important year because my brother uh, won an open university, earned an open university degree in Australia, having done uh, his teacher training in Northern Ireland and going to Australia. And his um, forte in life was to be one of the leading world authorities in butterflies and he wanted to work in the museum rehousing the butterflies in Sydney so he had to do an open university degree to be able to allow him to do that 
But working in Northern Ireland for my, my uh, uh, opportunity to go to uh, the Olympics, 72 was the worst year of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, so very often I had to get two buses across the town hearing explosions going off as I went on my journey to train. And I often wonder why I didn't turn back and go home and feel safe. I had that dream and that vision to go and do what had to be done. When I had my success, and my father had given me great opportunities in the early days, I was the first girl in school to have a tracksuit. Can you imagine that now? <laughs> and um, one of the boys who'd just left, left me his spikes behind, and my father gave me a ton of sand for my 16th birthday. <laughs> And even more bizarrely, a ton of cement for my uh, shop put circle <laughs> uh, when I was 17. So I, I hadn't had lovely opportunities of pretty dresses or high heel shoes. <laughs> and we didn't get the suitcases full of clothes in those days that uh, we did for, for London. But it was the passion of enjoying the friendship, the opportunities of travel and the good health that made it good for me. I didn't finish after the Olympics in Munich because I decided that I would like to go to one more Commonwealth Games. I'd already been to four. But sadly, six months after my success in my, Munich, my coach, um, Buster McShane, was killed in a car accident. And I had set up the fund to resurface the track, which had uh, been so disastrous for me, so the next generation of young people would have somewhere to train and it took me three years to collect the money to make that dream come true. But it was all worthwhile when we opened the track three years later and we invited the children of the local area to come and spell my name with their bodies on the track. And I meet these mature people who tell me they're in the letter M or the letter R. <laughs> um, and as I walked away, a teacher ran after me and she said, a little girl had said to her, Miss, isn't this lovely? I've never seen a mountain before. And that was the grassy slope at the side of the track. And I realized that those three years were worthwhile. But some years later, Granny wrote to me to say that her granddaughter had written in her school essay to say that she loved to train at the St. Mary Peter's track. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you I'm no saint. <laughs> um, but that made it all so worthwhile. I then was uh, invited to work for the BBC at the Montreal Olympics and um, I was walking down the corridor in the studio one evening and I saw two men coming towards me and one said, do you know who I saw standing outside the hotel this morning? And the other one said no. And the first one said, I saw Mary Peters and I looked up and there was Prince Andrew and I thought, huh, he's some name dropper. <laughs> <laughs> 1980, I was invited to become team manager of the British women's athletic team. And um, Prime Minister was Margaret Thatcher at the time. And because Russia were, were at war with Afghanistan, she decided the British team should not go and participate in those games. And we as athletes felt it was very, very remiss. Uh, the athletes had been training for maybe four or eight or even 12 years in preparation for those games. So we said we were taking our athletes, but that we wouldn't participate in the opening ceremony as a protest. But the hockey girls would be interested to know that the um, manager of the hockey team decided that she didn't want to take her team. And do you know who won those Olympics? A team from Harare who were housewives. 
Zimbabwean team and we would have won undoubtedly the Olympic hockey medal, gold medal at that time. So good. I'm so pleased that you did the bronze this time round and it'll be gold next time. But 80 was uh, the momentous year when Seb Coe and Steve Ovette were competing in the 800 and the 1500 metres. And we thought that Steve would win the 800 and that, uh, sorry, Seb would win the 800 and Steve would win the 1500 metres. And the night they competed against each other, I was on duty in the village uh, looking after the athletes that weren't competing that night and watched on television and saw that Steve Ovette beat Seb Coe. Now, it wasn't that we didn't like them both, but we thought it was Seb's race, and I was so disappointed. I went to the gates of the village to receive the athletes coming off the coaches from the stadium, saw a Seb and his father sneaking in through a side gate, ran across and gave Seb a hug and a peck on the cheek, and I said, I'm so sorry, but I still love you. And his father said, don't kiss an idiot. So I kissed his father and said, well, I will anyway. <laughs> and that uh, started a great friendship with, with Seb and his father. And, of course, he then went on to win the 1,500 metres and retain that title at the next Olympics in 84, where I also looked after uh, Zola Budd. Does anybody remember back that far? Zola was brought from South Africa on her father's British passport, she was a gazelle of 16 who ran barefoot in South Africa, couldn't compete internationally because of apartheid. She came over, she was hounded by the press, not only because she was de depriving a British girl of a place on the team, I mean a true British girl, not that she was, she was given a passport because her father was British. She was hounded by the shoe companies, people wanted her to wear their shoes, Everywhere she went, she was hounded, and she was really a very frightened little girl. And she went to um, Los Angeles to compete against Mary Decker, who was the queen of American track. And boy, were we pleased when she tripped her up. <laughs> <laughs> That's very ungracious, but uh, she, <laughs> she was not a very nice lady, and we wanted, obviously, we wanted a medal for ourselves. But Zola had um, cut in a little bit sharply on Mary Decker, and instead of her withdrawing, they clashed. And, of course, Zola was very badly spiked. She was booed off the track. Mary was lying on the side of the track having hysterics because she'd lost the opportunity of making a fortune out of being the best in America. And I had to accompany her back to the village with a helicopter escort overhead because there were so many threats to that young lady's life. Is that what sport's about? I don't think so. I think the pressure on that young lady was enormous. They then, when we got back to the village, I had a phone call to say that she'd been disqualified. And I had sent Zola to have a shower and to get changed because she was going to uh, have supper with her mum. And I didn't tell her that she'd been disqualified because by the time she came back and had tidied herself up, uh, they had reinstated her quite rightly. But that was a very traumatic team management because we then had to get her on a plane home. There were so many threats to her life. And the plane they chose to put her on, the um, Duke of Edinburgh was travelling on, so it was, it was very difficult at that time. But I'm happy to say she did marry, have children, and get on with her life, and now makes a lot of money running on the circuits, uh, the road circuits in America.
But after the 84 Olympics, I decided that I was getting too old to be uh, close to the athletes who were now just beginning to get sponsorship and uh, financial support for their success. And having been a pure, pure amateur, I felt it was right that I should move on and somebody closer to them should take over that role. But they appointed somebody older than me, but that's by the way. <laughs> I then went to the 88 uh, um, Olympics in Seoul where I was working for New Zealand Radio and during my time there I befriended a lady in the stadium, a Korean lady, and she said to me one day, you know, I really envy you. And I said, why? She said, in our country, old ladies don't work. <laughs> I'm still working <laughs> all these years on. Um, for 92 Atlanta, 90, uh, no, that was Barcelona, sorry, I just went as a spectator, but 96 Atlanta, um, the year 2000 and 2012 in Sydney and Athens, I was privileged to be invited to look after the sponsors of the British team. And that's a wonderful opportunity to stay in the best hotels, get transport to all the venues, know you're going to be at the events where there are gold medals being won. And it was a real privilege. And I loved every moment of that period of my life. But they asked me would I mind if a, if a younger athlete came to help me in Sydney. And I said, absolutely not. It will have my, my workload. And this young man who had been a member of the team when I'd been manager rang me and he said, you don't seriously do this job for nothing. And I said, no, I do it for the privilege. And he said, well, I've asked them for 30000 to go to Sydney for three weeks to do the job. And I said, why? Why are you not feeling privileged to put something back? And he said, because that's the kind of money that I would earn if I stayed at home. And I said, well, I hope you live long enough to enjoy spending it all. Because it was such a privilege to watch these young athletes competing and doing so well. I chose not to go to Beijing because I didn't have a role to play. But by 2012, I was invited to be an ambassador of the team. And 40 years on, it's quite nice to be still around and still wanted, uh, wanting to be part of it. And we had a wonderful time, the 30 of us that were chosen, going to sponsored events to encourage sponsors for Rio, um, being with the athletes, being with their parents and coaches, and, and generally being ambassadors for our country. And didn't London do well? Didn't they do the best? And these athletes, I have to applaud you. <laughs> the pressure and expectation on all of you was so high. When I went to Munich, nobody knew who I was. And oh, I did break the world record, and I still hold that record, because do you know what? They changed the event. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm so proud that Denise Lewis and Jessica Ennis have followed in my footsteps. But to me, London was about pride, pride of being British. The volunteers, and I applaud you too for all that the volunteers did to make it such a special games. The athletes of today do have the privilege of getting lottery funding and sponsorship but also it is important to have your education. I trained as a teacher, but I had to give up when I was pursuing my sport because the director of education wasn't keen for me having time off to go and pursue my sport. Education lost out. <laughs> I still have the joy of going into schools and talking to children and trying to inspire them. 
And there was a question earlier as to how we can take the legacy on for years to come. And I think it's all about coaching. I think you spoke about that. If we don't train coaches to be able to inspire and help these young people, we won't have that legacy because people will get disappointed if they don't have the opportunities that we have had. I'm very proud to be British and have been part of the Olympic movement for all these years. And I'd just like to leave you today with my recipe for life, which is this. And you take them all in. The five most important words are, I'm proud of you, and I'm really proud of you. The four most important, what is your opinion? The three most important, if you please. The two most important, don't forget these two. Thank you. And the least important of all, I. Thank you very much. Wonderful speech, Mary. We have a quick time probably for one question, is that oh, all right? Yes, okay. Well, who would like a question, put a question to Mary? Yes, one at the back there. I think that's, a, that's Neil Sclater, I think. Mary, um, you've obviously met and observed an awful lot of fellow athletes over the years. And I wonder uh, how you find that they cope with the fact that they can only be at the top of their sport for a relatively short time. They're, the incredible single-minded determination that's needed to stay there, but they've got the whole of the rest of their lives to lead. How do different athletes cope with that fact? Well, most of the ladies get married <laughs> and have their husbands support them. Um, I don't think that... In the days that I was an athlete, people really thought about what would happen to them after retirement. Certainly, I didn't. And my pattern of life has been so wonderful because it opened so many doors for me as a woman, because as a mature woman, because at 33 and 35, when I was still competing, most women had very often given up, and now they're grandparents, you know, at 35. So for me, having sustained a long career... And then had the opportunity of opening my own health club, which I did for 20 years, and then helped in the community because of the troubles in Northern Ireland when they weren't able to bring out politicians because they would be from one side or the other. I did a lot of work in cross-community work and charitable work. So it kept me in the public eye all these years. And um, Northern Ireland's a very small, close community, and everybody knows everybody else, don't we? Yes. <laughs> and one of the joys in my life uh, since my success is setting up the Mary Peters Trust, which helps so many young people. We've helped over 4,000 young up-and-coming sports people, including Alan <laughs> and um, Darren, um, not Darren Clark, uh, Graham McDowell, who was going to America on a, on a golf scholarship and, of course, now is one of the best players in the world. We've had uh, two Olympic gold medalists from the Seoul Olympics and so on. We had 16 athletes that we have supported going to the Games. But to answer your question, I think everybody knows their own destiny and I've heard the, the people here saying they want to go on and compete more and then they want to give back to sport. And I think if you can give back to the community in any way, then you've, you've succeeded in life and made your own life happier. A round of applause.
And now, ladies and gentlemen, we approach that critical moment, the unveiling of the plaque, and I'd like to call upon Martin to say a few words. Wow. Well, let me start, Mary, by saying we are so proud of you. Why don't we give Mary another big round of applause? What a... Who is... Uh, Mary, you didn't get to see it because you were facing this way, but the looks on the faces of the people next to you as you were speaking and they were imagining their future was actually quite something <laughs> remarkable to behold. It was, um, I hope we've got that uh, on camera because the four of you, it would be great for you just to see the looks on your, <laughs> your faces, actually. Um, you know, what I love about mornings like this is what an incredible moment of personal reflection, too. You know, if you're like me and you've gone through this time we've just shared together, there's that incredible feeling of being humbled, isn't there? You know, to sort of hear these stories and look at these lives and the resilience and the determination. How many of you flash back to the teacher or the coach or the special person in your life that actually you dug deep and realized they were the one that actually got you to where you are today? Uh, I know for me, um, what I'll take away from it is that it doesn't have to be about sport, it's about setting your personal best, and we've all got those in us. Uh, and I think that's really wonderful. It's about banging that peg into the wall and imagining you've got something to hang on it, I think is, uh, is, is really special. And, and you've, you've given us a great gift today, all of you, because uh, I think we're all going into our, our weekends now really kind of touched um, and, and affected quite personally. So, so thank you. And, and Mary, we are so incredibly proud that you accepted sort of an honorary degree from us as well. You know, that I think a university is defined by the company of the people that we keep and those that go out of their way to support us and to actually say, yeah, I'll attach my, myself to that institution. That's an institution that I care about, particularly when, you know, as you've, you've mentioned some of the things that you do, but just for the sake of everybody else that may not know, um, you know, Mary's commitment to public service is, is just extraordinary. You know, trustee of the Outward Bound Trust, vice president of Northern Ireland Outward Bound Association, patron of the Spring Hill Hospice up in Rochdale. And as we've heard, the Mary Peters Trust helps to support Northern Ireland's next generation of Olympians, um, as Alan just nodded his head vigorously as we talked about that. Um, Mary's commitment to helping others make the most of their lives and the dedication she has shown in her own career you know, really make her the perfect embodiment of what the Open University stands for. You know, you're, you're looking at my colleagues and supporters in the room, and these are people who uh, often look at me when I meet them and go, well, I don't do it for the money, Martin. Um, and there's, there's a way, there's a sense of the Open University. Every visitor that comes here that mixes with it feels that mission that just runs through our veins of the fact that now, we too feel we give people the chance to transform their lives if they want to have that determination and resilience to do it. And so we, we share a lot with the stories that you've shared with us today. So in just a moment, Mary and I are going to go over and we're going to unveil the plaque behind that curtain. And boy, I hope it's there. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, if not, we'll just Photoshop it in afterwards. We are very clever people. But we will, we will unveil the, the, the plaque. Um, and because I, I don't know about you, but I don't think we could pick anybody better to represent all of the people that the OU um, is around the Olympics and the Paralympics. As I said in my introductions, not just our wonderful student athletes, but our volunteers, our torchbearers, our staff, everybody that got swept up in the moment. And we're going to leave a little bit of history at your university 
for you as, as a result of today. Um, after that, after we've done that, I'm, I hate to say, but we've sort of come to the end, but our wonderful guests here today have said that uh, if you'd like to come down and have some photos taken without, without mobbing them, they'd be more than happy to do that, and I think you'll have a few takers in the room. There's already been a few snapped of you through with those little weapons of mass distraction people have in their pockets, I've been noticing <laughs> as we've gone through. Um, but I'd like to thank everybody who came along today. We're also broadcasting you, I believe, out through the, the OU airwaves for participating uh, today. And, you know, most of all, once again, to, to Mary, to Alan, to Etienne, to Alex, and to Helen, I hope in addition to you giving something today, you got a little bit back in return as well. And by the looks of your faces as Mary was speaking, I suggest you might have done just that. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, just be aware of the fact we've all made history uh, over the last 12 months, we continue to change people's lives throughout the world. What a very special morning. Have a fantastic weekend. And Mary, why don't you and I go over and see how we unveil a plaque. There's nothing in here. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're all here, immortal. Isn't that great? That's pretty amazing. I know. I need to give We'll send them to you. We'll send them to you. It's not a problem. Can we gather them? Why don't we do a photo? A couple on either side. Balance it up. Come on in here. Very good. You good? Yeah. Good. Thank you. Beautifully. Thank you.